Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Last week I started a series on the Old Testament. I don't know if it will be short or if it will be long, um, but I am getting reams of emails with questions. And I've got a list by my computer on my desk of questions I want to get to. I got some more last night. I'm not going to promise I'm going to answer all of your questions because I don't, I, who knows, I can't foresee what kind of a flood could come my way. But if you have niggling, bothersome questions that bug you about the Old Testament, please feel free to send them to me and I'm going to try and tackle a whole bunch of them in this series. Um, but last week I started this series on the Old Testament and I did a series on the Old Testament a number of years ago before we were in this auditorium, but I'm doing it again because uh, many of you are new and also we forget. And many of the biggest attacks, it's important, many of the biggest attacks against our faith right now are specifically aimed at the Old Testament. And people look at the Old Testament and they say, uh, what kind of a God is that? They say it's a barbaric, primitive book uh, that, uh, that looks down on women, the bad treatment of women, that there's violence. They compare it unfavorably to the Koran. They say it's violent just like that. And, and, uh, and, and so and lots of Christians don't know what to say to that. And lots of Christians question their faith. And then even within Christian circles and churches, you've got Christians who look at that and say, absolutely, it's violent, it's primitive. And so you've got uh, whole churches and conferences that are throwing, basically throwing out the Old Testament. And, and what they don't realize is that when you throw out the Old Testament, you throw out the faith. Because the New Testament is founded on the Old Testament. They are tied together. You cannot have the New Testament without the Old. And so this is a series about answering those tough questions, first of all, on an apologetic side to give us confidence that our God is a loving God and that this is a good book uh, and that it's God-breathed. Uh, secondly, it's also to give us maturity and wisdom and discerning. More and more of these attacks uh, are very common right, one right now, and we're going to touch on slavery uh, in the second half of this message today, but a very common one right now is, you, is, is to call us Christians hypocrites because, hey, we ignore the Old Testament laws on slavery, but we say that the homosexuality laws and sexual morality laws still hold today, so how can you just pick and choose? Well, we need maturity and discernment. How do we pick and choose? Are we picking and choosing? Is it just what we feel? Or is, or is the Old Testament still for today and there's, and there's maturity and discernment and wisdom for discerning what God has for us today and what, what was for a, a specific period in time? And so uh, last week, before we, uh, before we just go into answering all these tough questions, whether it be about women or about slavery or about homosexuality or some of these different things, I, last week what I said is we got to start by getting a context for the laws. We've got to start with a foundation, build it up, and once we have that context, then we can start to answer, and it won't be so piecemeal, it'll start to make sense as we answer some of these other questions. And so uh, the first place we started last week, as I said, there's four different types of laws, and one of the things I want to get across this weekend and in this series is a lot of people have this uh, mistaken idea that the Old Testament is one indivisible whole, that it's all or nothing. That if you keep one thing, you've got to keep it all. Or if you don't keep one thing, you don't keep it all. And that is actually ignoring the context of what God gave to the Israelites, starting with the first five books of the law, which is around 3,000 to 3,500 years ago. Okay? So when we look at the Bible, and we talked about this last week, just a little bit of a review. What we talked about last week is when we look at the Bible, uh, we think of it as a devotional book. We go here to uh, find out about God. 
Okay, and that's all we go there for. We don't uh, go to the Bible to figure out building codes or taxes or penalties and tickets for speeding tickets or things like that. And of course we don't. We say, this is where I go to find out about God. But right there, we've already removed ourselves from the context when the Israelites got it over 3,000 years ago, is that when God gave them the laws, he gave them so much more than just laws about who God is and laws about right and wrong. They were a baby nation. And this is what we talked about last, last week is that they were a baby nation and they needed more than just right and wrong. They needed right and wrong. They needed to learn about God, but they also needed building codes and taxes and criminal penalties and all those sorts of things, which is a set of laws that we just call the civil laws. And those laws were never meant for us today. God gave them to, to, to the Israelites in his mercy and in his goodness, but the, the, a railing around your roof or, you know, uh, you know, taxes, agriculture, some of those things, never meant for us today. The Old Testament is not an indivisible whole. It was given to a nation of people at a point in time. And then we also looked at the separation laws and how in order for the Messiah to be born, God needed to keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate until Jesus would come in order that the Messiah could come. And so, and we looked at Ephesians and how those laws, Ephesians, Paul clearly says, the, law, the laws that divide up Jew and Gentile are now gone. So again, the Old Testament is not an indivisible whole. And when we read it, read it, we intuitively know that. We intuitively know there's a difference between put a railing up on your roof and do not murder. We know that do not murder, it still holds today. We know that do not commit adultery. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. We know those laws are still for today. They still make sense, but some of them don't, okay? And so we looked last week at two kinds of laws, the civil laws and the separation laws. The separation laws were canceled at the cross because there's no longer any need for a division between Jew and Gentile. And the civil laws were God's mercy to the Israelites over 3,000 years ago to help them organize their nation. Now, Having said all that, the fact that they don't apply to us today, we also looked at that scripture passage, all scripture is breathed out by God. Which means that we don't just ignore those passages of scripture now. This is the only book in the world that is breathed out, the words are breathed out by God. Which means that even when you get a good Christian book out of the library that's very practical to your life today, there are ways in which even those civil laws that don't apply to us today, there are ways that God can speak to you through those words that he will not do through even a well-written Christian book out of the library because these are God-breathed words. And so even when we meditate on those laws, God can speak to our lives. He can reveal himself to us in ways that he can't through any other book. So we don't throw the book away, but we recognize too that there's certain things in here we don't follow the way the Israelites would have had to. Now, today I want to finish this section up in the first half of this message by showing you the other two types of laws, and then from there we're going to move on to slavery. But let's pray, and then we'll get into that. Lord Jesus, we honor you, and we love your word. Your word must have authority in our lives. We submit ourselves to it, and as a church, Lord Jesus, we just want to lift your name up. We want to be obedient to your word, and we want to be like David, who said, your law is like honey. It is like life. It is light to our footsteps, Lord Jesus. We want to be a people who, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we walk in purity and holiness with you in joy. And Lord, I pray that you would grow us in maturity and discernment as a church as we go through this series on the Old Testament. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so two more types of laws I want to cover here in the first uh, half of this message, and then we'll get into the slavery question specifically. That's a very common one. People have two more kinds of laws that you will find in the Old Testament. And really, these are the two most important. I started with the civil and separation. Those are less important. The two most 
important in the Old Testament were the sacrificial and ceremonial laws and the moral laws, okay? So we looked at the civil laws. God gave the, the nation of Israel taxes and agriculture and gave them organization. And we looked at the separation laws, Jews and Gentiles separate. But then God did give the Israelites a set of laws, and these are the ones that stand above the rest that are eternal. They're rooted in God's character. And he gave them law. He showed them what is right and wrong. And what a gift. What a gift. Leviticus 19.18. No other people in history had ever gotten instructions like that in their religious books or from their small g gods. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That will hold for all of eternity. That is very different from put a railing around your roof. It's very different from, you know, uh, you can't eat shrimp or you can't eat bacon, okay? It was different right from the very beginning. There was a set of laws in there. Do not lie. We look at these laws and actually they, should, they rejoice our hearts because that's what David talks about in the Psalms. They rejoice our hearts because we want to be like that. They say, do not covet. We don't want to covet. They say, do not murder. Most of the time, we don't want to murder anyone, right? So it's a good thing. Um, we love that. Do not commit adultery. That's, I mean, these are, these are laws that are forever. They're wonderful. They are wonderful. They, they show us who God is. He is true, and he is pure, and he is loving, and he is kind. He is good. Those are the moral laws. They are eternal. They are rooted in his character. They're very different from all the other laws. And we intuitively know that. Now, some misguided Christian or someone from outside the faith comes and says, well, if you follow this one, uh, then, how can you, then, then, you, then you have to follow that one. We intuitively know that they're different. We just don't know what to say to people. We don't know how to explain how we know that it's different. That's what this series is about. Okay? And it's helping to give us that discernment. But those, the moral laws are eternal. They're rooted in God's character. They're wonderful. They're amazing. Now, the only thing is, it, when God gave them these laws, he gave them do not lie. He gave them do not commit adultery. He gave them love your neighbor as yourself. The moment he gave them those laws, just like us today, the Israelites, imperfect, could not keep them all. Isn't that true? And we fail here too. Every one of us here uh, today has failed to keep those laws sometime in the last week or month, I'm sure, okay? Um, we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We failed to love our spouse as ourselves or our kids or whatever. We have failed to live up to this wonderful standard that God has given us, this moral law. This is a, these are amazing things, right and wrong. This is how we want to live. But we failed to live there. So God had to give them a second set of laws, which were one set of laws told them this is right and wrong, and a second set of laws told them this is what you do when you fail to keep these. Okay? Those are the sacrificial and ceremonial laws. Okay? They're very different. They're very, very different. Okay? And the thing you have to understand is that right from the beginning, again, there are Christians out there who will tell you you can't separate the two. The whole law is one indivisible whole, but it's not true. Because right within the Old Testament itself, from the very beginning, God always said, there is a certain kind of law that I love. And there are certain laws that I care about a lot less. And so uh, throughout the Old Testament, and I'll show you that, uh, starting Proverbs 21, verse 3, and I could show you many passages of Scripture that the Old Testament law is not one big indivisible whole. There are pieces that were meant for different things. Proverbs 21, verse 3, can you put that up there, uh, Darlene? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. From the very beginning, God said, there are laws that matter more to me than others. 
The laws that always mattered to God's heart were the ones that have to do with righteousness and justice. Love your neighbor as yourself was always at the top of God's list. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie. We're at the top of his list. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. See, some people have this idea. They read the Old Testament and they go, um, what, kind of a, you know, what kind of a weird God is this? What's his thing with animal sacrifice? Why is he so into animals dying? And they, 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 they mock the scriptures as if, you know, what kind of a weird God, primitive, savage God are you, are you Christians following? But the thing you have to understand is at no point in eternity has God ever taken pleasure in and of itself from sacrifice. He doesn't care about that. An animal dying on an altar doesn't give God joy inside. So you say, well, why did he make the sacrificial laws? Well, let me show you one more passage of Scripture just to show you this, and I could show you many on this topic. But Hosea 6, verse 6, God says this, I desire steadfast love. That's one of the commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. God said from the very beginning, sacrifice doesn't do anything for him in terms of pleasure or joy. The things he loves is be, have integrity, be truthful, be filled with love for your neighbor, do not covet. Those are the things he loves. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is within the Old Testament itself. God said, there are laws that matter less and there are laws that I care about deeply. So you say, why then the sacrificial laws? Okay, why then the sacrificial laws? Okay, well the answer is, that God is giving the laws to these people. This is somewhere, you know, about 1,400, 1,500 years before the Messiah is going to come and pay the penalty for our sins. So in the meantime, the Israelites needed a regular reminder of the seriousness of sin. A regular reminder. Like if all God gave them was the moral law and then nothing happens if you break it, well, what's, is, is this serious? So he gives them this second set of laws. And one of the purposes is, as a regular reminder, that when you break this law that really matters to God, it's a reminder of the seriousness, like something has to happen. The second thing is, it was a, it was a regular reminder that the penalty for sin is death. See, it's very easy for us in our lifetimes. We, you know, we sin and we don't automatically physically die that moment. So it's very easy for us to get into this place where we actually think sin might not have any consequences for us. We don't realize that, the con that and Paul says it in, in, in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. And this is from the very beginning of the Bible. The first thing, when God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, in the day you eat of it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Okay. Now, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They didn't physically die that day, but death started that day. They would have lived forever, but death started that day. Because death is separation from God. God is the giver of life. God is the source of life. So the moment you're separated from him, you break his moral law, the ones he cares about. Like he really ultimately, he doesn't care about whether you eat shrimp or not, or bacon or not, or whatever. And thank, and thank God for that. I mean, I just, I had three layers of bacon on my sandwich at lunch yesterday at home, and it was just, it was a heavenly experience. He doesn't care. You know, whether you eat bacon or not doesn't matter to him. Those were a specific set of laws for a point in time to bring the Messiah in to keep the Jews and Gentiles separate. But there are laws that have always mattered to him a lot. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Those matter to him. And he's the source of life. Now, when you break one of these laws, 
The only place where the Holy God is, you must be separated. Well, to be separated from the source of life and the giver of life is to die spiritually and ultimately even physically. Even if it doesn't happen that moment, death begins. So from the very beginning, the penalty for sin was always death. The Israelites, when they broke the moral law, needed a constant reminder that the penalty for sin is death. The only way to pay for your sins is with your blood. Well, there's another way, which we know now because we're Christians, so you can have a substitute. But in animal blood, see, I think some Christians actually think that the sacrifices did something for the Israelites. It didn't do enough, but it did something. Did you know that the animal sacrifices did nothing for the Israelites' sin? Nothing. Animal blood cannot serve as a substitute for your sins. The animal sacrifices were purely a picture. They were not the reality. They did not actually do anything for this Israelite's sins. They were purely a picture to remind them that the penalty of sin is death. And as a prophetic picture, someday someone's got to pay the penalty once and for all, or else you will have to pay it yourself. But the penalty for sin is always death. That blood must be shed. Now, I'm going to take you to Hebrews, because uh, there's just some, some good theology in Hebrews and the writer of Hebrews is going to explain this, and it's just really good. And we'll sit here for just a few minutes, and then we'll move on to that slavery question in the second half. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It's a shadow. Those sacrificial laws were always meant to, 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 as a shadow. It was a picture of something that was coming. That was what they were for. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder. What were the sacrifices? An annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the animal sacrifices never mat really mattered to God other than in the sense that he gave, like once he told them to do them, they have to do them. It mattered to him in that sense. But in and of themselves, the sacrifices were nothing to God. They were a picture for the Israelites. That's what they were. That's it. Okay? So as a result of that, when Jesus came and became the sacrifice, immediately a bunch of laws became obsolete. Again, this, the Old Testament is not an indivisible whole. When Jesus died on the cross those sacrifices that were a picture of his death immediately became obsolete because he was the fulfillment. But when he was on the cross, murder didn't somehow be, become okay. Love your neighbor as yourself did not some, suddenly become obsolete when he was on the cross. No, but the sacrificial laws did, okay? And that's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Those are the sacrificial and ceremonial laws. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, verse 14, because one sacrifice has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, I'm going to carry on with a few verses, but we're going to come back to that last line in a bit because that, that one is, is pregnant with truth. That's got some good stuff in it. We'll keep going and we'll come back to it. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. Now, Darlene, if you could highlight both of those the, 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 in verse 17 and the other one, the, I will put my laws in their hearts. Okay. 
This is very interesting here. Because again, some Christians, misguided in their theology, feel that the Old Testament is one indivisible whole that you can't break it up like this, but I'm showing you that it has to be broken up like this because God gave certain laws for certain things. Now notice at the cross, Jesus did not cancel all the laws. Some laws he put into our hearts. But later, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. So, after Jesus' death on the cross, a certain set of laws got cancelled, the sacrificial laws. They're gone. You don't need them anymore, because he is the sacrifice. But another set of laws didn't disappear. Where did they go? Into our hearts. He didn't get rid of the moral laws. He didn't get rid of love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't get rid of do not murder. He said, I just, I just made those laws even better. I'm going to put them inside of you. Okay? Now, that is a now, not yet promise. Okay? It's now in the sense that as you and, you and I give our lives to, to Christ and we walk with the Holy Spirit, the more we walk with the Holy Spirit and the more we walk with Jesus and the more we love him, the more we experience a desire to do those laws. The more we experience a desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. Isn't that true? The more we have a desire to stay away from things that are impure, that we would not want to lie, that we would not want to lust or commit adultery, those things. The more we walk with Jesus, we experience that to be true, that his laws come into our hearts that we actually desire to do right more and more. But, having said that, we still often desire to do wrong, don't we? Okay? So there's a not yet sense to this promise too, which is, this promise won't be fulfilled until the resurrection. But what this promise does say is that the resurrection, when Jesus comes back and we get our resurrected bodies, literally his goodness, his laws will be written into our hearts. We will only ever want to do right. We will only ever want to tell the truth. We will only ever want to love people. We will only ever want to show respect. We will only ever want to be pure in integrity. His laws will be written in our hearts. We're experiencing it now. We have a taste of it now, the Holy Spirit, and a day is coming when we will not even be able to desire evil because his laws will be written on our hearts. Not the sacrificial laws. I don't know if, you know, you gave your life to Christ and suddenly you had a desire to start sacrificing goats and turtle doves. I don't think you did, did you? That's a different kind of law. That's not the one he wrote in your heart. He wrote his moral laws, his eternal character, right and wrong, into your hearts. Now, I want to go back to verse 14 because it's, it's amazing. Verse 14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, I wanted to underline two different sections there to contrast something. He says, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, the question is, which one is it? Are we perfect forever or are we being made holy, Right? Like, how can they both be true at one time? Are we perfect forever, or are we being made holy? Well, of course, on the one hand, we all know the reality that we're being made holy. We're not, we haven't been perfected yet, have we? We still struggle with stuff, okay? So we know that reality. We haven't been made perfect forever. So what does this mean that by one sacrifice, he has made us perfect forever? Well, here's, here, here's the amazing thing. And I want to help you see now the, how the moral law is different now to us than it was to the Old Testament Israelite. The Old Testament Israelite, when he would 
uh, you know, well, he didn't have a Bible like we do today, but he would hear the law read or whatever. But let's just say he read it. And let's say the Old Testament Israelite opens up his Bible and, re- and reads the, the moral law. And he reads, you know, do not commit adultery, do not lie, love your neighbor as yourself. He looks at it and it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Righteousness is wonderful. That's how we want to be. He reads it. He desires to be it. The only problem is he can't do it. So the law being the law, it doesn't just tell us what is good and and what is wrong. It also tells us that the penalty for not matching up is separation from God is death. So at the same time that the Old Testament Israelite reads the law and goes, it's beautiful, I love it, at the same time that same law condemns him and says, you don't match up. At the same time. So he reads it and he says, I wish I could be that, but the law shows him, but you're not. But you're not that, and as a result, you deserve death. And so the moral law in the Old Testament, at the same time as it was a beautiful thing, it showed right and wrong, at the very same time, it condemned people. But here's now the beautiful thing about what Jesus did. This is, this is amazing, because we get the beauty of the law, but we don't get the condemnation. See, when he went to the cross, he didn't suddenly make it okay to not love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't suddenly make it okay to commit adultery, but what he did do is he paid all the penalty in one sacrifice. For all time, he paid the penalty for every failure you will ever make to that moral law. So now, our perspective of that moral law has completely changed. When we go to the law now, instead of it condemning us and saying, you don't match up, you deserve death, now when God looks at his penalty book, and every time you fail and fall short, he looks at his penalty book, what are they owed? Every time he sees that penalty book clean, you have been made perfect forever. There will never be that condemnation hanging over you because by one sacrifice he paid for all time the penalty for falling short of that moral law. So now instead of a depressing thing, instead of the moral law showing me what I'm not, this is the beauty of the moral law now. It shows us what we are becoming. You are being made holy. Do you see now how the moral law becomes a thing of beauty? Now when you look in that moral law and you see God is good and God loves and God is pure and God is truthful and he's all these sorts of things. You look at that and instead of the law condemning you, you're not that and you deserve separation from God. Now the law says you are being made holy. You're not there yet, but you're on the way there and there's no penalty of condemnation hanging over your head. Is that not amazing? But you know, for me, you know, I'm going to put up the, I'm going to put up the next thing, I want to, and then I'm going to say something else about that. But I just want to make sure we get this down with these four types, okay? Civil laws, building code size, they were never meant for us today. That was God's mercy to them in that time. He can still speak to us today, though, through them, because all God's words are breathed out by God, or all the, the, the words of the Old Testament are breathed out by God. Separation laws, Ephesians 2 tells us, cancel the cross. There's no more division between Gentile and Jew. Sacrificial ceremonial laws, canceled. He is the sacrifice that the sacrifices were pointing to. Here's now the, the shift with the moral law. The moral law still defines for us right and wrong, and it always will. It will always be wrong to murder. It will always be right to love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law will stand forever because it's rooted in God's character. But Jesus has now paid the penalty, all the penalty, for your past sins, for your future sins. He has paid the penalty for all time. So the penalty for falling short of that moral law no longer applies to those of us who are in Christ. He has paid it in full forever. So instead of it condemning us, it now gives us hope. We are being made holy. 
Now, for some of us, what this means is we actually need a shift in the way we view ourselves and in, in, in our identity. Because for some of us, we get so down on ourselves constantly, there's pe- we walk in hopelessness, I'll never change. I'm hopeless. I'm this, I'm that. I'm a jerk that nobody likes. I'm, a, I'm an addict. I'm a sex addict. I'm this. I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad dad. We identify ourselves by our failures. And so we get down ourselves. We speak hopelessness. You know what? We, it's, actually, it's, actually a, it's actually a sin. That kind of self-talk, we, constantly we have this self-talk going on, and it's actually flaming arts, uh, arts, <laughs> flaming arts from the, the devil, pictures that he drew that are flaming, and he's throwing them at you. Um, <laughs> Flaming darts from the devil, that hopeless talk all the time, those are from the devil himself to discourage you, to make you quit and give up. Because your identity no longer is rooted in what you're not, it's rooted in what you're becoming. It's, your identity is being made holy. You're not perfect yet, but you're being made holy. You're going in a direction. And we need to, get, we need to take that identity into ourselves. We need to pray about that. Now, uh, there's two extremes, and I wanted to, to just pull this apart for just a moment. There's two extremes, and we have to make sure we're not on these extremes. The one extreme is people who are just discouraged and defeated. Uh, they completely define themselves by your weakness. You are not your weakness. It isn't who you are. Now, there's another extreme. We'll just talk about that briefly. That is Christians who are living in fantasy land. They're living in, in la-la land, Disney worlds in a, in a spiritual realm, and in their attempt to not get discouraged, they pretend that they have no struggles. I don't want to talk about the fact that I have a lust problem. I don't want to talk about this. I don't even want to admit it to myself because if I admit it, I'll curse myself. So they just want to be ultra, ultra positive and pretend that they have no problems. But remember, you're being made holy. You're not there yet. So how do we walk in the middle not defining ourselves by our weaknesses but also not living in fantasy land? And this is where confession and all that sort of stuff comes in. We talked about it last week in, in a message where I ended there with Ephesians. We need to bring, we need to expose the darkness. Wherever there's darkness inside of ourselves, we need to bring it out into the light. So we confess it. When I have a struggle, if I'm struggling with lust or anger or whatever it is, I bring it out to people I love and to myself and to God. Confession. This is what I'm struggling with. But I do it with hope. I don't bring it out in confession in the sense of I'm hopeless, I'll never change, I'm useless. We have, that we have to confess that. That is sinful. It's not the truth of God's word about us. We confess it as I have hope because I'm being made holy. I'm on my way. The law shows me where I'm headed. His law is written in my heart already and someday it's going to be firmly stamped and I won't be able to even desire to disobey it. I am being made holy. I get a break. Let's talk about slavery. <laughs> Let's talk about slavery. So, now I've set the table. You've got the moral laws and the sacrificial laws and the separation laws and the civic laws. And now we have a foundation, a context for looking at the Old Testament. And now we need to talk about slavery. Does the Bible condone slavery? And this is important, again, as I've been saying the last two weeks, because there are big attacks against our faith using the slavery stuff in the Old Testament. Attack number one, the Bible is a barbaric, primitive book that condones slavery. 
Attack number two is you are all hypocrites. You say that homosexuality, the homosexuality law still applies today, but you ignore the slavery law. You can't pick and choose. Well, what I've been showing you in the last two weeks is you can pick and choose. Now, it's not picking and choosing, but what I've been showing you is it's not one indivisible whole. It's not like if I keep one thing, I have to keep it all. I have to look at why did God give this? Certain things are done, and certain things weren't for now, and certain things are forever. So the question we now have to ask is, is the slavery law a forever law? It's part of God's character. He just loves slavery. And he's always loved slavery, and it's a part of him, and it's forever. Is it a moral law, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, love your neighbor as yourself, we've got to keep it forever? Or is it a different kind of law, a civic law, meant to regulate or minimize evil in the culture not something that's part of his character, but more like one of those civil laws that is no longer for us today. And I've showed you examples of those. Well, let's step back. And the first thing I want to do is, I just want to show you an example. Before we even touch on slavery, I want to show you an example. Because a lot of people think, if it's a law, God must have liked it. But actually, I can show you examples of civil laws in the Old Testament that actually God hated that law, but he had to give it in order to regulate evil practices in the culture of the day. So, for example, divorce. The Old Testament law actually allows for divorce. I'm not going to read you the entire passage. I'm going to read you just one verse. And the reason I'm not going to read you the rest is because I might come back to it later when I talk about the Old Testament's treatment of women in a different message in this series. But just having the first verse will be enough. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and uh, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, I don't want to get into all the details about this, and we'll talk about the Old Testament's treatment of women at a different time. So put that on the shelf. But what you can see is that the Old Testament law allows, allowed for divorce. So now, using the same reasoning that people want to use on slavery now in the Old Testament, we could say, well, he allowed for divorce. Obviously, God loves divorce. Like, why would he make a law that allows divorce if he didn't like divorce? Obviously, he likes it. Well, we get to Malachi 2, verse 16, and it says this, For I hate divorce. That's what God says. I hate it. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, talking about uh, physical abuse. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with your spouse. So God says, I hate divorce. Well, what in the world? How, on the one hand, can he have a law there that says you're allowed to divorce, and on the other hand, he can say, I hate divorce. I mean, if he's got the law in there, he must like it. Well, Jesus explains in Mark chapter 10 how God can have a law in the Old Testament that he doesn't like. Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees are saying, there's a law in the Old Testament that says we can divorce, therefore God likes divorce, and they were divorcing like crazy. So Jesus is going to rebuke them. Mark chapter 10, verse 4. They, they, the Pharisees, said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So if Moses did, we're not better than Moses, we can do it, right? Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Now this is so much bigger than divorce. This is an interpretive key that is so essential as to understanding and reading the Scripture. Because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, because of the fact that some husbands will beat their wives, well, and vice versa, some wives may beat their husbands, or other kinds of abuse, or serial, ongoing adultery, that sort of thing. Hardness of heart. In a perfect world, there would be no divorce, because God hates divorce. He hates it. 
but because of the brokenness of this world that some people are like predators and they will prey on a weaker person and they get married and now there's a marriage vow there and it's like no matter what they do to the kids, no matter what they do to their spouse, they are, their spouse and their kids are tied to them for life because marriage can't be broken. And God says, uh, 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 uh. In a broken world where you have predators like that because of your hardness of heart, I have to make a concession. I don't like divorce, but I also don't want predators taking advantage of marriage to abuse people all life long. So I'm going to make a concession. I'm going to allow some divorce in this broken world. You see how that is not a moral law. God is not like divorce. It's a civil law made, given by God as a concession to minimize evil because of hardness of heart. Does that make sense? At least three or four of you nodded there, and so I've got 1% of you tracking with me. The rest of you are in a bit of a daze. All right, we're going to move back to slavery, okay? So the question now is, slavery. Is slavery a moral law that God loves, or is it one of these civil laws meant to minimize an evil? Well, I want to show you a bunch of uh, regular... Well, maybe I'll just throw up Leviticus 25, 44, just to make it real here. Let's just read this quickly. We, I read it last week, but just a reminder that the Bible does, the Old Testament allowed for slavery. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, uh, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. Now, again, as I said last week, that is highly offensive to us today in, in 2017. So again, the question is, is this a moral law forever, or is this a civil law meant to mitigate an evil? Well, let me show you some regulations, because the Bible has a lot more to say about slavery than just this passage. And the interesting thing is, when you begin to actually look at the regulations, you are going to find, and we're going to find together here this morning, that... Uh, God absolutely does not like slavery, and you'll see it right in the regulations. The other thing you're going to see is that, see, we're reading a document here, Leviticus here, over 3,000 years old. When we read the word slavery, though, we immediately think of the history in the American South. When we see the word slavery, we think of white people doing horrible, hellish, hideous things to black people in the American South and we're horrified by it. What I'm going to show you as we go through these regulations is slavery in Old Testament Israel was nothing like the American South. In fact, it was so different that the, the word slavery, it shouldn't even be the same word. So let me show you some regulations, and you can deduce for yourself, is this a God who loves slavery, or was this a law meant to mitigate evil? Well, let's look. The first law is what I call the no returning runaway slaves law. Okay, the Old Testament law categorically forbid people from returning runaway slaves to their masters. Let's look at this. Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16. And by the way, each of these laws, I'm going to read to you, except one exception, which I'll show you in just a few minutes. Each of these laws applied equally to foreigners and to Hebrews. Slavery in Old Testament Israel had nothing to do with race. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Okay, let that sink in. You shall not Give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you, he shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose. So a slave runs away from his master, and Steinbeck runs to Klefeld. Klefeld is not allowed to return him to Steinbeck. He can live in Klefeld wherever he wants. Capiche? <laughs> he shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Okay, now, I just read you that law, and you all thought, okay, well, that's a nice little law. Let us pause for just a moment. Think about what one little law like this does to the entire slavery system. 
it destroys it. It destroys it. Think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. If a slave doesn't want to be a slave for his master anymore, he just has to leave. That's it. The moment he leaves, nobody is allowed to return him. All the slave has to do, I don't like working for you, go to the neighbors, the neighbor's not allowed to return you, and the moment he leaves, he's allowed to live wherever he wants, wherever he should choose, wherever it suits him, he's free. This is, this one little law is the destruction of the entire slavery system. I don't want to be a slave anymore. I'm going to go next door, can't be returned, I get to live wherever I want, I am free. See, and this brings up a second thing. Well, you say, well, how could, how could a slavery system exist with a law like this? Uh, it can't exist, right? Well, here's the thing you have to understand about slavery in the Old Testament. It was voluntary. Hmm. What? That doesn't sound like slavery as we know it. Look at this. Exodus 21.16. Pay attention to this law. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, wow. Now there's another. Um, wow. God really loves slavery, doesn't he? He's a big fan of slavery. Okay, look at that law. Um, wh whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Think about what this means. You can't force anyone to be a slave. If you grab someone off the street and try to make them be a slave, the penalty for you is death. And the penalty for whoever buys that slave off you is death. There's no enforced slavery then. If you can't kidnap and steal people in order to make them slaves, the only way for them to become a slave is for them to volunteer. Because if you grab someone and try to make them a slave, they're dead, and whoever buys them off you is dead. Dead, dead, and a free slave again. Twenty-one sixteen. Now, you say, well, who would ever volunteer to be a slave? See, we, we use the word slave, but we are always thinking of the American South, and this is nothing like what happened in the American South. And I'm going to come circle back to that at the end of this message in just a few minutes. But why would anyone volunteer to be a slave? Well, the thing you have to understand is this is how things worked in Old Testament Israel. Let's say you were very poor and couldn't take care of yourself or you had racked up debts that you could not pay for. How are you going to get out of this situation? Okay, there wasn't a, a, a welfare system like we have now. So here's what people do. They couldn't feed their family. They were overwhelmed with debts. What you would do is you would sell yourself into slavery to someone. But it's really not slavery as we use the word slavery. It's more like you're trading labor. You're giving labor in exchange for the moment you sell yourself into slavery, all your debts are paid. And now, whoever buys you has to take care of you for six years. After six years, you're released. Let me show you this, okay? Exodus 21, same, same chapter, we'll just go earlier. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing, okay? Meaning he goes out with no debt, he goes out not having to pay you anything. He goes in, you take care of him for six years, he has no debt, he doesn't have to pay you to leave. At the end of the six years, he's gone, he has a new start in life, Okay? Now, by the way, this is the only one of the slave laws that doesn't apply to foreigners and Hebrews alike. Uh, foreigners, you are allowed to own foreigners for life. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very enlightened. But again, remember, God, this is not a law. God doesn't like slavery. This is a law to mitigate evil. Secondly, there was probably some benefits into it, and I can't necessarily explain all of it, but foreigners were not allowed to, to own land in Israel. 
So think about what happens if an owner, so the moment a foreigner sells himself into slavery to someone, that person, the master, is now his beneficiary for life. Think of a master doesn't like him and kicks him to the curb and says, I don't want you anymore. He can't buy land. He can't get, he can't make a living. So there's, that's probably part of the reason why there's a difference between foreigners and Hebrews. But nonetheless, the point was you sold yourself in, all your debts were taken care of and you were taken care of for six years and after that you were free if you were Hebrew, okay? Verse three, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So you didn't break up families. Verse four, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. Now that's offensive to us and we go, well, how can you do that? But remember again, he went in voluntarily. Uh, did the master give him uh, his daughter or did the master give him uh, someone who also was working off debts or whatever uh, without permission? If he came in and took something to the masters, he couldn't leave with it. But now watch, if he wants to stay with his family, he can, verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Voluntary. Voluntary. It was a financial transaction. It was trading labor for you taking care of me and my family and my debts. Okay? That's what it was. Furthermore, uh, Old Testament law, and I don't have this one on PowerPoint, but Old Testament law mandated that slaves always got the Sabbath. And it mandated that if a master ever abused a slave and the slave was injured, the slave was automatically free. Look at this. Exodus 21, uh, 6, 27 when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Okay? So this is nothing like how we imagine slavery. In fact, all of these laws have the effect of blowing up the system of slavery. If a slave wants to go, if a slave leaves, he can't be returned, he's free. If a slave is injured, he's free. If a slave is forced into slavery, everybody involved with that forcing is dead and he's free. So uh, this, is, this is an enlightened system. Now, I want to come back to slavery in the American South, and this is where I want to finish with just a, a, a few comments here. Because one of the big attacks being made right now is people will say, the Bible, and this gets said all the time now, because there was, there was preachers in many churches in the American South during slavery who were, who were preaching uh, uh, slavery. And so commentators and stuff will say now who, who are ignorant of the actual facts of what the Bible says, they'll say the Bible propped up slavery in the American South. The Bible, Christianity was part of the problem. The Bible is, is so, and that's why the, we have to leave the Bible behind. And that's, this is part of being civilized, is leaving it behind because look, the Bible caused slavery. Let me tell you something about those preachers in the American South who were telling people that the Bible uh, was okay with slavery. They were liars. Out and out, they were liars. Out and out, they were liars. If they had actually looked in their Bibles, if they had actually cared to preach the Bible to the people in their churches, the people in the American South would immediately have put to death every single person who ever kidnapped an African and brought him to the shores of America to be a slave. They would have immediately put to death every one of the owners who ever bought from one of those slave traders. And all those slaves would have been free. They would have immediately set free any slave who had ever been injured by his master. It would have been the end in one day if they had actually preached the Bible. If they had only done what the Old Testament actually says, all of them would, be, would have been free. And if there was any left who just desired to go next door and not be a slave anymore, they would have been free too. 
they all would have been free. See, the Bible has never caused slavery anywhere in history or in the world. It has always been a source of rebuke and opposition to evil systems like that, always. And that's why, if you actually look at history, what really happened is it was Bible-believing Christians from William Wilberforce to John Wesley to Charles Finney, and actually the vast majority of the abolitionist movement in America, it was fueled not by atheists or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. It was fueled by Bible-believing Christians. It was Bible-ignoring people who perpetuated slavery. It was Bible-believing Christians who gave their lives to break it down. And all you have to do is actually read the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, you don't end up with slavery. Let me finish with two passages to show you also that there is nothing racist in the Old Testament. Look what God says in Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now look at this. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's the foreigner. Look at this. This is right in the Old Testament. If you actually just read it, it will smash down oppressive systems like slavery. He loves the foreigner. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now look at this command. Love. This is the command. The command isn't to enslave people. That is nowhere in the Old Testament. Love the sojourner, love the foreigner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And I could show you many passages. I had to cut a bunch out. I'll just show you one more. Exodus 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner, a foreigner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Bible, the Old Testament, not just the New, the Old Testament and New Testament both have always been weapons against oppression and hate. And God is a God of love, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when, and when David said in Psalm 19 that I love your word and I love your law because it is wonderful, it is still true today. The Old Testament is not a violent, hateful uh, book. So I want to pray now. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. And I want to pray that the Lord Jesus is going to give us confidence to stand on this. Because there's just a river of slander being unleashed against the church, against Christianity, against the Bible and rather than being swayed so easily, we need to have a confidence in what the actual truth is. And so, Lord Jesus, I'm praying for a boldness to come over us here at Southland, a boldness that we don't have to be ashamed of history, that actually when we look at history, we will always find that your word has been at the center of light and truth and goodness, and that your spirit has always been working on behalf of the oppressed and the poor, and that you are good, and that that goodness can be seen throughout history and throughout your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us a love here at Southland for even the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. I pray that you would give us a love for your law. David said there was much life to be found in looking at your law. I pray that we would find life in it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that your light would now shine out as we learn and grow in the truth. I pray now that as we have conversations at work and with our families, that your light and your glory can ring out from us to Steinbach and the rest of Canada and the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.